The Medical Alley podcast is brought to you by MentorMate. Custom software needs vary significantly, whether you're powering a medical device, overhauling your backend architecture, or reimagining your patient experience, MentorMate can help. Harnessing the technical excellence of Bulgaria, MentorMate provides end-to-end software services in all sectors of healthcare. With deep expertise in design, development, cloud, and software support, MentorMate helps healthcare clients administer world-class care through technology. Learn more at MentorMate.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the Medical Alley podcast. It's so great to have you here today. We have a wonderful discussion coming up uh, with Leslie Adair, the National Executive Director of Mental Health at the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. And it's a, a timely discussion to have during Mental Health Month to talk a bit about what's going on in the world, uh, what we might do about it, and what Hazelden Betty Ford is up to. Leslie, it's so great to have you here today. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and about the organization? Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, as as was said, my name is Leslie Adair. I am the executive director for mental health for the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. Um, I'm a trained psychologist and was also trained as a marriage and family therapist. Um, and I've worked in the field for about 25 years and have been with the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation for almost 15. Oh, it's fantastic. And I, I think a number of our listeners are are generally familiar with Hazelden Betty Ford, but could you give them just a, a snapshot of the organization, who it is, what it does? So Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation is an organization that uh, treats uh, individuals who experience uh, symptoms of substance use and uh, mental health problems. And we have a number of locations across the country and in a a number of states uh, and provide different levels of care for individuals. Everything from individuals that might need residential care for the treatment of their their, uh, issues to outpatient um, services um, to even standalone mental health services. So we provide a, quite an array of behavioral health um, services for individuals that are, are dealing with these types of issues. We um, have a strong mission to be a source of healing and hope for individuals, families, and communities affected by addiction to alcohol and other drugs. And, and so I think it's also important to talk um, more broadly about the, the families that are also affected by addiction, and we certainly provide services for them as well. Oh, that's a really great point that the, these sorts of issues don't just affect the one individual. They have a, a broader family and community effect. Mm-hmm. In the last year and a half or however long it's been that we've been in this pandemic now, um, Mental and behavioral health issues, substance use has been a, a big part of the discussion. People being at home, losing jobs, a lot of different issues coming up. What, what has the pandemic meant for Hazelden Betty Ford and for the, the people that you work with and that you treat? I can think of really two ways to answer that question. For the individuals that we treat, these the pandemic and the the associated things that have occurred in our in our country as a result of the pandemic are unprecedented and have led to 
really phenomenally um, high increases in both mental health symptoms and substance use problems. And you mentioned some of them, you know, losses of income, um, the uncertainty of the pandemic, the fear and the uncertainty about what this is, how long this lasts, and then how long it has lasted for us has really challenged um, individuals' ability to cope. And once that happens, unfortunately, they're, they're, that kind of opens the door for an increase in mental health and substance use um, issues, which we have certainly seen. As an organization, we have been, like every other organization, really affected by the pandemic. And when it hit, it hit very quickly in our country. And I think what, what it caused us to do is to really carve out our priorities early and then to hang on to them and never waver from those. And what we've carved out as priorities for both our patients and our staff was that first and foremost, we needed to protect people. And that of course includes both of those two groups. Um, the second was to really be able to act on our mission by keeping our doors open and being able to continue to provide care for the people who really need this. Because in some instances, that care is, is the difference between life and death. And so we had to keep our doors open. And then through all of that, we also had to make sure that we could keep our mission alive and, and keep our doors open through our margin, through, you know, through the, the revenue that we, we generate. So those were the three really big buckets that became our guiding light through this whole pandemic and helped us continue to do the work that we do. I, I really appreciate you sharing that and highlighting that it it didn't change, that it was steady through the pandemic, the, the uncertainty you talked about. I, I've spoken with others at different organizations, that same thing of just knowing this is what we're trying to do, this is where we're going, that sort of steadiness was a, a comfort and a help and made the last year in some cases more possible. I won't say possible, but more possible. And you, you mentioned as an ask about this, so you kept the the in-person or the residential part of it going. How challenging was that the last year? <laughs> that was incredibly challenging, especially in the very beginning of the pandemic. We had to really quickly become a nimble delivery of services. And we had to learn to make really quick decisions and to get comfortable with making decisions based on the information we had in the moment. Because at that time, the, the, the information that we were getting was changing from time, you know, from minute to minute. Um, we had to really develop a strong communication um, channel so that we could get information to everybody, not just if you think about it. This is up disrupting everything. So it's disrupting our staff and they need to know what to do, but this is also disrupting our patients and they needed to know how to manage the shift or the transition into what we needed to do to continue to deliver care. And so, you know, in the beginning, it was hard for us to find personal protective equipment, for example, to keep our staff safe. It was hard for us to find cleaning products and things, you know, so there were teams of people that were out there shopping, if you will, for, for, for that kind of equipment, and it was hard to find. 
um, when we pivoted to um, delivering services virtually, we had to do some shopping for technology equipment so that if we sent people home to work remotely from home, that they would have the ability to do that. So it was really challenging in the very beginning, um, but I think we got really good at it over time. And I do think it was because we had sort of those, those um, guiding sort of light posts that kept us focused and really kept us on track when there was just so much uncertainty. Yeah, you, you knew what was important and could focus on that instead of trying to figure out what to focus on, then do it. Yeah. You, you mentioned the, the work from home, the virtual care piece of it. I want to talk about that for a moment yeah. because there's maybe two parts to this. There's been a ton of telehealth developments all across healthcare. Um, I had my first cardiology appointment via a phone call earlier this year and said, why haven't I done this before? Um, I'm curious, so like in, in the fields of mental and behavioral health, where in my experience, the patient-doctor interactions or therapist interactions are often longer, what was that like going to telehealth or to virtual care if maybe the patient's at their home or another setting, the care provider is at their home or another setting? What was the experience like in that? It, it's been really interesting. We were actually on the journey to developing virtual service delivery as one of many tools that we would have at our disposal. So we had already been piloting that to some degree and, and had developed kind of a strategic plan for how to implement that nationally. So when the pandemic hit, in many ways, we were already moving forward. And, and in fact, one of the things that uh, we had been piloting was a really unique way to deliver um, care to individuals. Um, most, of, most of us think about telehealth as being a one-to-one -one sort of conversation between a patient or an individual and their provider. What we were piloting was this idea of having one provider being able to provide a group experience to multiple individuals at the same time. And we had been dabbling with that in a pilot stage when the pandemic hit. We received information on, I think it was, I think it was actually March 20th of 2020, that we needed to move to a virtual delivery of services for all of our outpatient services. And we had about seven days to do that. And, and it was remarkable. I mean, I am really, really proud of our organization for their ability to be focused, to rally, to, to do this work, because we had to train dozens and dozens and dozens of clinicians on a new delivery serv service delivery platform. We needed to have communication with patients and clients and, and coordinate all of that. Um, we had to get equipment for them. It was a massive, massive job. And we were doing that for somewhere in the neighborhood of about 3,000 patients, if you think about both mental health in our substance use programs. And since that time, we've, we've probably served another 3,000 people that, that you know, didn't go through the initial experience with us. And so it was a re it's been a really interesting year and a half. And I would say not all negative. I think we've, we've found some real gems within what is really a very negative situation when it comes to how we can, we can reach people who need us. You know, that, that I mean, first of all, that's just awesome. You know, not the way we necessarily want to all have to figure it out, but given what it is, 
That's really awesome. In telehealth, right? Like you said, I've heard of one-to-one, real-time, asynchronous, but one provider to a group. Could you talk a bit more about that? Is it bringing like group therapy into a virtual setting or what was it? What was the experience like? Yeah, that is, that is really exactly what it is. It is, it is taking the experience of group therapy and then delivering that virtually. And, and so that an individual can connect to the group from home, from, you know, anywhere that they are at and still participate in that group. We have had patients in the last year, for example, who are well enough to participate in treatment, but they have COVID or, you know, they're well enough to, you know, participate in treatment, but they just recently had surgery. So many ways in which people could still participate in the care that they need under whatever circumstances are going on with them. You know, if you think about it, lots of parents, you know, suddenly found themselves in the position of like, oh, my kids are home and I've got to be home and, but I, but I need this group. So it was taking what, what is, you know, what we understand traditionally to be group therapy and then delivering it virtually. Do you think, you know, whatever the new normal or post pandemic or whatever that ends up meaning, do you expect that these sort of services you'll continue them, that it'll become part of, or it is part of the the normal offering of care that Hazelden Betty Ford provides? I imagine that this is, is absolutely going to be one of the tools in our continuum of care. There, is, there have really been some advantages that have come out of the development and, and, and learning to deliver this on a regular basis. It allows us to meet the needs of people that don't live near a site where they can come in. The demand has remained very, very high for it. Like you had mentioned earlier, I think a lot of people didn't realize that they could get this kind of a service virtually. They, they knew about, you know, calling up and getting a virtual consult with a physician who could give them a prescription or, you know, do a consult. Um, but they had no idea that they could engage in substance use treatment or participate in a mental health group or, or even simply just doing an individual one-to-one session with a provider. And the more that we have used, utilized this, the more we've heard that story. Like I had no idea I could do it and I really like this. So I do think that, that it's going to be here to stay. Um, we will go back to and are currently making plans to go back and, and do in-person group therapy on our outpatient, at our outpatient programs. But we are also planning to continue a certain number of those to be virtual because of the demand. Oh, that's great to hear. And I think in, in different areas of care, we're hearing similar things that it's becoming a tool. It's not the only tool, but it's expanding the set of tools we have. And there are patients and individuals who can get access or a community or whatever it might be that they might not have easily been able to access before. But one of our board members described it as you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. <laughs> Um, that, that's really true. I, I was going to, to mention one other program please. and one other utilization of a, of a virtual delivery system, and that is in our, our um, family programs. So long before the pandemic, we had in-person family programs 
Um, so that, you know, individuals su surrounding someone with a substance use problem would be able to access education and support and understanding around the, the kind of way that addiction affects families. But that meant they had to come to our, our sites to do that. And so the numbers of families that could actually do that were, you know, they were good, but they are nothing like they are now. So around May of last year, we we set up our family programs onto a, a virtual platform. And since that time, we have actually now served over 4,000 families in our family program. Those are numbers we could never ever have, have reached in our, our bricks and mortar um, sites. So to me, that is also just a huge success story. Yeah, that's phenomenal. To be able to continue the care during this time, that's great in its own right. But then to be able to actually expand the reach of it even more, like there are, it's, and again, it is unfortunate to get to this point for all of us. It took this sort of thing, but we're making good things out of it that I'm confident we'll have a better healthcare system, you know, coming out the other side, whatever that is. One of the other things that, that came up that seemed to be just a greater conversation during the pandemic was just the topic of mental and behavioral health or substance use. It, it seems like, and I'm curious if you're seeing this or what you think, but it, it seems like there is a greater willingness and openness to talk about it. And maybe some of the stigma not gone away, but maybe starting to break down a bit. I'm curious, what are you seeing in that room? Is is the stigma going away or changing a bit or what's happening? Yeah, I do think it's it's changing a bit. You know, stigma around both of these, both of these areas is very, very, very deeply rooted in our culture. But one of the things I have noticed is that where it's starting to shift, interestingly, is that employers are starting to pay attention to the well-being of their employees in a different way than they have in the past. They have done a lot of work to understand the implications of the pandemic. And you can't do that without understanding its relationship to symptoms of mental health and behavioral health issues in general. And so what that has done, I think, is shifted a little bit the conversation that employers and employees are having, um, that employers are learning to ask their employees how they're doing. And I think employees are learning to be more comfortable in saying, yeah, yeah I'm struggling. You know, I've got my kids home and under my foot 24 hours a day, and I'm trying to do my job. Or um, the, the social isolation is having an impact on me. And that there's no shame in that. Um, because that is, a, that is an experience we are all having. We're all really becoming aware of the social isolation. Um, that's what all the frustration about, can't this pandemic be over, is about. And so I think that that's, that's kind of a unique way with that in maybe just a very small amount, but it is kind of creating that shift, I think. And my hope is that that is going to last long after the pandemic is gone. You know, no one has a crystal ball into the, into the future and what that's going to look like. But, but I am hoping that we are coming to a place where there's more and more tolerance and understanding 
about um, the way in which individuals are affected by what is going on around them. And just because they're being affected by that and might be starting to experience symptoms related to that, that that is not an indication that there is something wrong with them. It's a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. So that's, that's my hope for the future is that it's gonna continue to, to, um, to shift and break down. Yeah, the I had not thought of that angle of the the employers being a kind of a, a driver of some of this shift. I guess two last questions, and one would be: Is that is that an area where Hazelden and Betty Ford Foundation is engaged in working with the employers in any way? And then what I'll ask in closing, and you can go any direction you want in this. You, know, you started talking about the future. Where do you see the future, or maybe what do we need in the future? to get to a, a better place in mental and behavioral health and substance use treatment? To answer the first question, um, you know, I do, I do know that we are, we are having more conversations with insurance carriers and EAP programs about the needs of their, you know, their employees and how to meet those needs. So, um, and that's, and it's through those venues that I hear those, those comments and those thoughts. Um, so yes, we are engaging with, with entities to help support um, the development of ways in which employers can effectively help uh, their employees. And it was, it was always something that we were very, very uh, conscious of in our own organization. I'm really proud of the way that we have supported our, our staff, uh, recognize the challenges that they have been faced in trying to work and be parents and have other lives and have elderly family members perhaps that are, you know, struggling. It's It's been really, really hard for everyone. And, and we've, I think, done just a, an exceptional job at paying attention to that and to keeping people safe. Like I said, you know, we did not lose a single employee to COVID um, to date. And I think that's remarkable. I think it's really remarkable. Your second question is a little bit harder to answer because <laughs> I don't have a crystal ball into the future and what this looks like. I can speculate. Um, I do think that the pandemic is going to have a long tail as it relates to mental health and substance use problems. We're starting to see the problems mushroom, mushrooming already, and it is going to take a long time for the U.S. to heal from the sort of ancillary impact of COVID. And we, I think, are facing a real shortage in providers. So I, I have concerns with how that's going to, how that's going to shake out, and how are we going to, as a, as a profession, um, meet the needs of all the people that are going to need care. And, and I think that that that's going to create an environment where we can get really creative and inventive and innovative around how to do that. And, and so. I think there's the possibility that the pandemic will have a positive disruptive effect on the way we think about care in the future. I don't know that for sure. That's just an intuitive, maybe um, idealistic hope that I have um, that we can keep keep moving forward and, and keep finding more and better ways to help the people in need. I, I think you're right. You know, None of us have a crystal ball, but what we do have is the ability to create change and 
when I listen to the things you've talked about, when I look at what Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation has done over the last year, year and a half now, uh, I feel pretty good that the people who can figure that out are right here and are working on the right things. And I'm, I'm hopeful that as that kind of mushroom builds up, as we see these longer implications from the pandemic, it's the people in Medical Alley, the people like you who are going to help us figure it out and get to a better place. So Leslie, I just want to say thank you for spending your time with us today, sharing your insights and your thoughts and uh, helping us to understand a bit better what's been going on and what we might do about it. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure to, to do this podcast with you. Thank you. And folks, that's another Medical Alley podcast. Make sure to sign up at medicalalleypodcast.com to get all of the episodes, including this one. Have a good day.